1: For nearly two decades, Shonda Rhimes has been one of the most important people in television. She ran Thursday nights at ABC, and her show Grey's Anatomy is still a top performer 16 years after its debut. Recently, Shonda brought her considerable skills to Netflix, where her reign as a hitmaker continues. I first met Shonda when she joined the Board of Trustees at the Kennedy Center, where I learned she's not just a creator, but a leader, a leader. On this episode of Peer to Peer, Shonda discusses her ambitions at Netflix and the goals she set for her production company, Shondaland. Shonda, you shocked the entertainment world a few years ago when you said that you were leaving ABC, even though you were mostly their biggest profit source from the entertainment programs in the evening, and were moving to Netflix, which is not a television production company, but a streaming television company. So why did you do that?
2: You know, I really had been looking at what was going on in the industry. You know, television ratings had been sort of slowly lowering. A lot of people were watching things like Netflix. I knew what I was watching um, and I knew what was exciting me and where it felt like the really exciting programming was coming from. And I also was looking for a certain kind of freedom. You know, I'd been making a very particular brand of television for ABC. You know, Shondaland on ABC was a certain brand of television, which I was very proud of. But I really wanted to spread my wings and do more than that. And this was a real opportunity to do so.
1: So you go over to Netflix. Now, when everybody is, when somebody is famous and they move, let's say in a baseball player or a football player, they go to a different team or somebody tries something different, people are always saying, this person isn't really as good as they, their reputation and they're gonna flop. And there's a lot of, um, I would say in Hollywood, maybe there's some people that don't like people that are too successful. And so they're kind of wishing secretly, maybe they're gonna flop, but you didn't flop. You had an incredible hit. Uh, your first show, Bridgerton, was the biggest, most successful opening show of any uh, thing on Netflix ever.
0: All is fair in love and war.
1: So when it went on for the first time, were you worried that night whether it would actually be a success or did you not panic?
2: You know what's interesting? I wasn't scared about the success of the show. that That's not my job. I always say that. I was happy by then because Netflix was already happy. Everybody had already really liked the show. Everybody was really pleased with it. I wasn't worried about numbers or how it was going to do. One of the things I liked about Netflix was everybody told me I didn't have to worry about the numbers. You know, Ratings don't, quote unquote, matter on Netflix. Um, of course they do. But you know that was a sort of thought that was had. So I wasn't worried about that. I was much more nervous when we were editing the show and I, we were seeing what the product was. Like, I wanted to see what the shows turned out as and how they felt. So once I knew the shows were good and I wanted to watch them and I felt really good about them and I felt like they could be exciting and addictive and then it turned out that they felt the same way, I felt fine. I I don't even think I paid attention that very first day that they came out.
1: You also started another show that'll be coming on uh, Netflix called Inventing Anna, which is about a woman who pretended she was a wealthy German heiress. It turned out she was not. Why did you think that was going to be attractive for a, a, a series?
2: I was fascinated by this story. One, because I'm fascinated by journalism, and I really loved the, the journalism that went with uncovering the story. But two, Anna is a really interesting character to me. She's a, truly a genius. And I also think that if she were a guy and she had pulled it off, people would have just applauded her. Um, But I think because she was a woman and she sort of had the audacity to believe that she could do this, it felt a little bit like an Mm. affront to a lot of people. She was sort of labeled in a lot of ways that I don't think we label men. And I liked this idea of this woman with all of this ambition and no place to put it. There was something about that that felt Mm. really profound to me and felt very now for where we are now.
1: So when you're writing something, it's a solitary kind of thing. How do you do writing? but also you're doing production and you're doing other things. How do you concentrate and have the time alone to write?
2: Well, you know, there is an aspect of writing that is um, communal. You know, There is the writer's room where it's you and sort of seven or eight other writers and your job is to sort of help them through writing their drafts of the show that you've created, um, which is both amazing and fun and very difficult. What the pandemic did, I think, is sort of make that writer's room process a lot harder Um, but for me, you know, writing is, it's a very solitary, um, experience and I'm a very fast writer when I have the space and the time to do so. I feel like I'm much more naturally an introvert. And so being, you know, being the person who writes and does that stuff is much easier for me than the other parts of it, which are the public parts or the, the producing sitting in groups and explaining to everybody what has to happen parts, but finding the balance has been, um much easier than I thought.
1: During COVID, I assume uh, you were working out of your home more than your office. Yes. So is it easier to write a show or create a show from home with three young daughters running around? Um,
2: I found you know, being at home to be both revelatory in the sense that I'd always felt like there was so much, there was so much work to be done that I had to be standing you know, right in front of everybody to be doing. And then I discovered that no, actually, A, a lot of people got a lot more freedom to do things that I didn't need to be controlling. And B, I got a lot more writing done just being at home.
1: Are you going to change the way you operate? Will you spend more time at home now? Or you say, actually, I I can't wait to get back to my office.
2: I definitely think I'm going to spend more time at home, mainly because I get a lot more writing done here. Um, There's not as many interruptions. I've discovered how little I am needed on set, you know, I used to joke that if I'm standing on a soundstage, I'm the only person who's not working because I'm either writing or editing. So if I'm where they're shooting, I'm the only person not doing a job. So to me, um, I think there's a lot more that can be done if I'm at home now, which I never would have believed before. Um, it's that feeling of you're so you're so necessary everywhere, and discovering that you're not that necessary everywhere but that the places where you can be necessary, you can really make a difference if you focus on those.
1: So let's talk about your background. Um, mm-hmm. You grew up in a suburb of Chicago. You're yes. the youngest of six children, is that right? Correct. So when you're the youngest of six, I guess you get a lot of hand-me-down clothes and do your parents really pay attention to the youngest of six? By that time they're kind of done, aren't they, gone?
2: I. You know what's interesting is I didn't get a lot of hand-me-down clothes and my parents were very focused on us, which was, delightful for me. Um, My parents are educators. So I think for them, they're very, they were very intensely focused on um, making sure that we had what we needed. My mother, I always said like, if we were poor, I did not know it because my mother, you know, made all of our clothes and they were all fantastic looking. And we, there was a lot of focus placed on us. My mother stayed at home for a long time for us, which I think was a big sacrifice for somebody as intelligent as she was and as interested in being at work as she was. Mm but she really made sure that we were well placed in the world and sort of ready to go out into the world and be who we were supposed to be.
1: Okay, so you grew up and you went to a college. How did you happen to pick Dartmouth? Because it's fairly isolated and much different than Chicago.
2: You know, what was interesting, I went um, on a college tour and Dartmouth was one of the places that we visited. And honestly, I fell in love with the place when I got there. It was beautiful, it was in the middle of nowhere, it felt very much to me like what college was supposed to be. Every single person I met there had been, was really friendly and had something great to say about it. And very different from a lot of the other colleges I went to, it was surprisingly diverse at the time. I think they had, you know, what might not seem like a big number now, but I think like 18% of the students were students of color or something like that. And it felt very welcoming. And I thought, well, this is a place for me. And I absolutely loved my time there.
1: So when you graduated, you said, "Okay, now I'm going to go into something important like private equity or investment banking or not.
2: (laughs) You know, I was really lost for a little while when I got out of college because I really wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be Toni Morrison when I grew up, but I didn't know how to do that. And I also, you know, my parents had sacrificed a lot financially for me to go to this school and I didn't want to be a disappointment. So I got a job in advertising for a little bit. And then I read an article that said um, it was harder to get into USC film school than it was to get into Harvard Law School. And I thought, well, my parents can't fault that because it's graduate school and it's difficult to get into. And so I applied to USC film school. I got in and I went and I told my parents, well, I can teach. And as professors, my parents thought, well, she's right. She can teach. And so it felt like something real for them.
1: So you got a master's degree at USC and then Mm -hmm. you were sort of writing on the side a bit during the daytime or in the evenings or how were you doing that?
2: Yeah, I, I got a job um, at a place that helped the mentally ill homeless learn job skills and find places to live. I was like a, an administrative assistant and at night I would write my scripts. And I had, a, I had a, a, an agent or a lawyer at the time, you know, that everybody got one out of film school, kind of hoping that something would happen for them. And I ended up selling a script and that script basically changed my life.
1: And had that script not sold, you might be still in advertising or what would you think you'd be doing?
2: I remember when like a month before that script sold, I had applied for the post baccalaureate year that prepared you for medical school at Bryn Mawr. And I was gonna go and do that. And then I was gonna go to medical school because I thought, I can't, I can't start this way anymore. Like this is not, this is not for me. I'm gonna go be a doctor. And luckily I did not do that.
1: So the medical profession's loss is the uh, creative writing community's gain, right? Because you're not a doctor, but it worked out okay.
2: And I hope that, you know, maybe the writing about doctors inspired a lot of young women to be doctors. So hopefully, it was also the medical profession's gain, as I like to think of it. The
0: countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor, QB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
1: Most people who have been successful in Hollywood as producers or writers have been white men. Um, Norman Lear, Aaron Spelling are two classic examples. Uh, When you came along, you were not a man and you were not white. So was there a lot of discrimination against you that you felt uh, palpably at the time? Or was it very subtle?
2: I just find that to be a difficult question to answer. And I say that because um, I don't know what it feels like to be a white man. So I don't know how people were treating the white men at the time. I only know how I'd always been treated. And I was you know, raised very clearly by my parents to be a person who did not look at things as obstacles i looked at things as hills to climb and when anybody treated me in a way that was not 100 percent respectful i was taught that that was always their problem and that they needed to be put in their place and that i should move forward and so i'm sure that i experienced a lot of things that were not probably what other people experienced i just chose not to be defeated by them or or even bothered some of them i probably didn't even bother to notice
1: so today uh, given how prominent you are in the entertainment world, do you feel discrimination at any point now or you don't feel any discrimination?
2: Um, No, I mean, there is an insularity that comes with, you know, being in a certain position in Hollywood, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, if somebody doesn't know who you are, they still see you as, you know, just another person of color, you know, person of color. The racism in this country is the racism in this country, unfortunately.
1: So the events that led to the murder of George Floyd uh, obviously affected our country dramatically and certainly the African-American community uh, particularly. Um, How did you respond to that? You're a prominent African-American figure in the country. Um, Did you feel you had some obligation to speak out or do more, or how did it change your life, would you say?
2: I mean, I still, uh, I think the the events well, I think that the entire George Floyd situation did a couple of things. One, obviously, like anybody else, I felt nothing but rage and frustration. But I also felt real dismay that a lot of people use that event to finally discover that racism existed. Um, that, was, that was disturbing to me that it took that, something that horrific for people to go like, oh, wait, there's inequality? That was that was a little upsetting for me. I don't necessarily know that I felt like I had a particular obligation to do anything um, more than any other person did. You know, a lot of people were marching, a lot of people were protesting. I think the beauty of what happened with George Floyd was how many average citizens stood up and did something. Um, I think that's, that's the power of that moment and, and that hopefully will continue to be the power of that moment. But I also feel like whenever I'm asked this question, I never quite know how to walk the line between saying like, well, here's what I did and here's what I think is important. And because I feel like it might let people off the hook a little bit, because it also suggests that racism is the problem of people of color. And really, I feel like I always want to say, well, it's not what I did to work on the George Floyd problem. It's not what I did to work on racism. You know, racism is a white people's problem. And what are white people doing to solve it? So to me, like that's the big question that should be asked.
1: Public companies often focus on shareholders. Now increasingly, they're worried about other stakeholders, employees, communities, and so forth. Your own company, do you uh, focus it on having some social responsibility as well?
2: You know, it's interesting. We've been struggling with that concept right now um, because we don't sell activism, we sell entertainment. And you know, if we wake somebody up to the idea that they have a civic responsibility or that there's a a social justice issue that they could be involved in, or that there's a feminist issue that they can be involved in. That's a wonderful side effect. But I also know that given just who we are as a company and the kind of stories we tell and the kind of work that we do, there's other aspects of us that feel important to how we as a company engage with with the area around us. So I feel like it's important, for instance, to create worlds in which we're we're making pathways for other people of color to have opportunity in this industry um, and figuring out other philanthropic ways that make sense for us as a company um, that feel right for who
1: we are. So you think your should perhaps have a role in commenting on climate change or racial discrimination? I'm
2: assessing how it works for us, but I do feel like I spend my energy and my money and my time on companies that, are, that share the values that I share. And I'm not interested in spending my money and time on companies that don't share those values. And I mean by actively don't share those values. I, I don't necessarily know how I feel about companies that remain neutral at this point. I've been really thinking about that because I do think people have the right to remain politically neutral. It's the ones that sort of are going in opposite directions, actively destroying the climate or actively working against women's rights to choose, things that things that I find worrisome that, I, that I'm concerned about.
1: So let's talk about... Uh... Shondaland. You've built a quite a, I would say, entertainment complex. And let's go through some of the things and how you are able to do all that. So let's talk about, for example, um, you have a podcast as well. Now you're doing with iHeartMedia. Is that right?
2: We have a podcast division, yeah, called Shondaland Audio. The great thing is, is that, you know, I am really lucky that I have amazing people who work with me at Shondaland. So um, Sandy Bailey, who runs our digital division, came to me and said, I really think that we could have a podcast division and it could be really powerful. And she's been overseeing it and has come up with some really great shows. And part of the beauty of it is we could take somebody like Katie Lowes, who starred on Scandal and who was in Inventing Anna, and showcase her with a podcast called Katie's Crib, which is about parenting which has become one of the most popular podcasts on Apple iTunes and on iHeart and those things to listen to. We can do a podcast with someone like Laverne Cox, who's also an Inventing Anna. We can take um, a show like Bridgerton, create a podcast about it um, that's doing really well. Also do behind the scenes video footage. Take that video footage, put it on our website, um, shondaland.com and sort of have a nice synergy going. And that's been really important to me to really create a world in which all of the aspects of our shows and all the aspects of um, our, our I, I call them the people in our Shondaland family can find a place to be creative and exist in one spot.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at com.
1: Now you have a partnership as well with Dove and that is designed to, I think, among other things, let people um, know more about the way their hair might be Um, Warren, can you explain your views on hair, particularly for African-American women and children?
2: Well, you know, the partnership with Dove has been longstanding. And one of the things that I always have loved about Dove is that they have been really um, positive and really assertive about the idea that real beauty is defined in all forms. You know, every skin, every body, every kind of woman is their own definition of beauty. And they have been, you know, instrumental in working on the Crown Act, which is um, a law that's been passed in, I can't remember how many states by this point, um, that says that you can't be discriminated against because of the way you wear your hair. And that has been a real issue for a lot of people of color. You know, you hear the stories of the, the basketball kid who gets his dreads cut off before he's allowed to play or somebody who's fired because of the way they're wearing their hair at work. We try really hard to sort of um, uh, police the way people look Because it doesn't look like, you know, the way somebody feels that they should look. And that is a real bias in this country. And so the idea that we could create something called the Crown Act allows people to, uh, you know, sort of embrace who they are culturally and wear their hair the way they need to wear their hair or be who they need to be versus trying to achieve some standard that's based on sort of a white, you know, European centric idea of what people are supposed to look like.
1: So uh, you wrote a book as well, The Year of Yes, and that was reflecting the fact that your, one of your sisters had told you you always said no. So you decided that one year you would say yes to speaking engagements, graduation, commencement speech and so forth. So what dis- made you decide to say yes uh, that one year and are you happy you did so? You
2: know, she did. She said um, one Thanksgiving, she just said, you never say yes to anything. You know, I'd been detailing all of these these invitations I'd gotten. And that year um, we were I was on the board of the Kennedy Center and um, I had gone. I went to the Kennedy Center Honors and I was told, not asked, told that I was going to sit in the box with President Obama and Mrs. Obama um, for the honors. And I did and I had a wonderful time and I didn't know them at the time and I had a wonderful time and it was a lovely evening, but I realized on the way home that if somebody had asked me if I wanted to sit in the box with them, I would have said no. And I would have said no because I would have been too nervous. I would have been too afraid. I would have thought, why would they want to sit with me? Well, you know, it was that thing of, of not having any of the confidence or the nerves to do so. I would have absolutely turned it down because it would have been too stressful to have come up with the, the notion that I could possibly say yes. And that really sort of stunned me that I would have missed such an amazing experience and amazing opportunity um, just because I was too nervous to do something. And so I decided, yeah, I was going to try to spend a year saying yes to everything that scared me. And the very first thing I was asked to do after that was to give a commencement speech at Dartmouth in front of 10,000 people. As a very successful woman, a single mother of three who constantly gets asked the question, how do you do it all? For once, I'm going to answer that question with 100% honesty here for you now because somebody has to tell you the truth. Shonda, how do you do it all? The answer is this, I don't.
1: You pointed out in your book, you've also adopted three young girls. Is that more challenging than writing scripts or producing shows or is it much easier?
2: (laughs) I always used to say, like I say three daughters and 47 actors or something like that when I had three shows. Um, But no, I mean, I feel like having children is, far more difficult and far more fulfilling than any script, any job, any show. It's also far more fun. But I also think that the older you get and the more practice you get at it, the more fulfilling and easy it becomes. You know, with your first child, you're always afraid. Um, As my mother always said, your first child, you're always afraid you're going to kill the baby. With your last child, you can toss the baby down the stairs and think like, she just bounces, she'll be fine. You know, that in that way that my mother always used to say. But really, like, children are such um, doors to reality, they keep you grounded and they really keep you focused on the present and that's the best thing ever.
1: So um, when you're raising children in Hollywood, which I haven't done, but I know when you're raising children and you are wealthy and you're famous, it can be a challenge. So how do you keep your children grounded because they just could go out and say, my mother is this famous person, or how do you avoid that?
2: Um, Well, for the longest time, my oldest daughter thought I ran a hospital. I mean, she really did. Like, I sort of kept her insulated from the idea that I had any job that anybody knew about at all. Um, And my youngest daughters now, you know, it's it's a little bit harder at this point. But I try really hard to just raise my kids the same way I was raised, with the same values that I was raised with. You know, I'm from the Midwest. I still believe that you put coupons and you don't throw things away. So. You know, this is a town in which that's not really a thing that's valued, but I try to stick to the way I grew up and I feel kind of lucky that I'm surrounded by some people who also feel that way.
1: And what do you do for rest and relaxation? I assume you must get a little bit of it even though you're so busy.
2: Okay, so I recently bought a cello. um, Probably because I saw Yo-Yo Ma play the cello um, and got really inspired by his, his whole Bach series that he's traveling around and I've been obsessed with him for a long time. But, and for years, I've been saying, I'm going to learn how to play the cello. I'm going to learn how to play the cello. And I mean, for like 15 years. So I finally went out and got myself a really nice cello, and I've started taking cello lessons. So that's my new way of relaxing. And it is wildly, I mean, I'm terrible at it right now, but it is wildly relaxing to try something new in that way and to spend that sort of concentrated time doing something different. Um,
1: well, why don't you come to the Kennedy Center and play a duet with Yo-Yo Ma? You can arrange that. <laughs>
2: Um, I think that poor Yo-Yo, would, he would be very um, horrified by, by what was coming out of my cello.
1: Now, what new worlds are there for you to conquer in the entertainment world? You, you're at the top of the profession. I can't imagine how you could be more successful. Is there something else that you aspire to do that you haven't done yet? You
2: no, know, I'm really enjoying my life at Netflix right now. You know, we've just I think like we've just gotten started there. And, you know, I can't wait to keep building on that and and enjoy that, making new shows there, working, you know, building on our podcast world. Um, Enjoying those worlds is exciting to me.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen.